Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan, investigative journalists based in Moscow, co-founders of the website Agentura.ru, and authors of the new book, The Compatriots, The Brutal and Chaotic History of Russia's Exiles, Emigres, and Agents Abroad. It sounds like a really interesting book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Hope you are too, um, and are looking forward to our conversation. Let's get started. by Russian investigative journalists Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan. They are the authors of the new book, The Compatriots, The Brutal and Chaotic History of Russia's Exiles, Emigres, and Agents Abroad. Irina, Andrei, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I haven't read the book yet. I, it just came out. Um, but you talk about the history of, of Russian emigres. So not just currently, but also going back to the years after the Bolshevik Revolution. And throughout that time period, the Russian government has been very interested in and concerned about emigres in a way that governments of many other countries are not. What accounts for this sort of intense interest in and involvement um, with Russian emigre communities? Well, even before we started researching for this book, I, uh, to be honest, it always puzzled me why Kremlin has this uh, and has well, always had this obsession uh, with the Russian political emigration, uh, given the fact that, uh, to be honest, the political emigration was not extremely successful at influencing things uh, back in Russia, not during the Tsar, not after the revolution, uh, not actually after the Soviet Union collapsed. And the only explanation which came to mind, and uh, actually that what we found out uh, when we researched for the book, that there is a big fear there that uh, another group of political exiles, if something happens, could get back to Russia and uh, take down the political regime and change the game, just like it happened in 1917 mm-hmm. uh, with Bolsheviks. And the idea that Lenin was a an agent of the German general staff, uh, helped financially, uh, had deep roots inside of the Russian security services. Many people we spoke to inside, they told us this story, which is a bit, well, hilarious, but nevertheless, they, they believe. Well, the Germans did help Lenin get back to Russia. Yeah, yeah but it's only part of the story. That's right. true, yeah. <laughs> but he was not, had never been a, a German agent. Right. But, you know, this this conflation of foreign support, uh, threats to the regime, exiles, you show in the book, this is something that goes back a long way in, in Russian history. Absolutely. And uh, when we tried to, why we decided actually to start the book in, in the 1920s, because uh, when we researched for the book, we understood that many methods, uh, many tactics the Russian intelligence services use it today mm-hmm. could be traced back to, to the very beginning, to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the Soviet government, the Bolshevik government's uh, war on anti-communist emigres in the 1920s? How did they sort of identify and, and track and, and go after people in the emigre community? Stalin was obsessed with political emigre and political exiles and tasked his agents to spy on them and to kill them. And it started with white immigration mm-hmm. and white emigrants, which was it was clear and explainable because uh, they really were uh, uh, white emigrants were uh, enemies of yeah. the new regime and Stalin personally. Mm-hmm. But Stalin was also obsessed with his political rivals whom he expelled from the country and he continued then to spy on them and Here's, uh, let me give you one example, Trotsky, Trotsky of course. Uh, yeah. the most famous revolutionary after, after Lenin. And uh, 
also very brave and brilliant person. He was a rival of Stalin, and when they split it, uh, Stalin expelled him from the country. But when Trotsky uh, continued his anti-Stalin activity abroad, which was absolutely predictable because he was he was a revolutionary, real, right, real revolutionary, Stalin tasked his people and many many agents in Europe and then in the United States in Mexico to spy on him, to hunt down him, and then and then to kill him. His obsessions with his political rival was so great that after Trotsky was assassinated, his uh, supporters, Trotskyists, were also NKVD, Ogopo, Soviet secret police, continued and kept on spying on these people and uh, putting pressure on them. And unfortunately, the, the KGB took a lot uh, from, the, from Stalin's police and especially the intelligence branch. And you know that we have been covering the, the Russian secret services for years. Yeah. But before we started research for this book, uh, we were sure that uh, modern intelligence are quite uh, quite different from previous security services, from 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 the intelligence branch uh, of the KGB and from the Stalin's intelligence. But when we finished research, we came to conclusion that of course they are different, but not so much. They <laughs> adopted they adopted a very important principle that they had to go after political exiles, political emigration, and they had to spy on them, intimidate them, and maybe kill them, poisoning them. So mm-hmm. that's very an optimistic conclusion. <laughs> now I'm curious, sort of the the methodology, the mechanism of some of this uh, intelligence activity among the the emigre community. I know during the Soviet period, one of the things that the Stalinist government did was cultivate ties with people um, among the emigres and try and, you know, use them, you know, whether they were Bolsheviks or not. You know, some of the, the people in the white emigration who nonetheless saw themselves as, as Russian patriots, even if they weren't pro-Soviet, to participate in some of these activities. So the the emigration was at once a source of opposition, but it was also a source of, of agents for, um, for the Kremlin. Yeah, absolutely. And um, ideology played a really big role. But Stalin's agents were extremely successful. And sometimes if uh, the situation changed, uh, they skillfully adapted to these changes. Uh, just to give, uh, let me give you one example. There was uh, this very famous Soviet operator, uh, Jacob Golos, who was uh, actually a ringleader of a very big and extensive network of spies. Uh, in the United States. Uh, he was uh, one of the founders of uh, the Communist Party in the United States, and he spent literally many years hunting down uh, Trotskyites and white emigrant community, of course. But when the war started, the Second World War, he started approaching the white emigrants, saying, look, forget about communism. Now we are all Russians. We need to protect and we need to defend, to do something to for defense of our country because we are under attack. So let's forget about ideological uh, problems. Now it's time to defend the motherland. And of course it was very, very uh, skillful and a very smart decision. He also made public that he sent his son uh, to fight uh, in, in, in Russia to fight the Germans. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually, he uh, urged many white emigrants to send their people, their kids uh, to Russia to fight. And that was a very smart move because immediately the Soviet Union got lots of hostages. Right. You have white emigrants still living in New York, but if their kids are fighting 
or just, uh, or just uh, physically resident, physically yeah. resident in, in the Soviet Union, you have these hostages. And uh, that uh, makes them much more vulnerable for any kind of approaches from Soviet intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I love that you do this book as a about the historical continuity from this, the Bolshevik era through the Stalinist era to the present. But obviously, there was a big rupture in continuity with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you address this in the book, but can you talk about how some of these networks and ideas and, and methods that were used during the Soviet period were kind of reconstituted after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, one thing which was really clear that disinformation uh, um, was extremely important uh, when uh, the Soviet intelligence ceased to exist, but uh, was reinvented as a new Russian foreign intelligence agency because uh, actually it was the same people and uh, they feared most that they could be disbanded or sent to jail just as um, Stasi generals were prosecuted. So they feared the same fate and what they did, they decided to protect themselves by themselves. And uh, there was a very interesting uh, decision and discussion inside of Yasin, was the headquarters of uh, Soviet intelligence branch of the KGB, what could be done. And they decided that it's better to give this assignment to the disinformation unit of uh, the foreign branch of the KGB. And it was very unusual because this unit was previously tasked to deal and to, uh, to target Western audiences. Uh, they didn't have any experience targeting Soviet population for that. Other units of the KGB res- were responsible. But they did quite well, mm. actually. And we, I, can, I, I could say that they succeeded. So in a way, when we are f- now thinking of the Russian foreign intelligence, uh, we can say that the founding principle of this organization ni- in 1991 was disinformation. Um, and that allowed them to sort of assert their their relevance uh, to the Kremlin. Uh, they no, it was uh, well. They had several tasks actually. They needed to convince the Russian government that they are. Uh, they, uh, they, there is no need to disband them and to reform them. And actually, they succeeded uh, spectacularly. Uh, the only branch of the KGB which was never reformed is SVR, uh-huh. uh, Russian foreign, foreign intelligence. intelligence. And we also we needed to convince Western intelligence uh, communities mm-hmm. that there are people uh, who might be partners mm-hmm. in, say, um, investigating international um, drugs smuggling or trafficking or uh, nuclear wars, proliferation, mm-hmm. things like that. So they can, could be partners. And um, also we needed to convince Russian public that uh, they are not... KGB people which right. should be feared, but just uh, normal intelligence agents, just like James Bond or CIA <laughs> people, intelligence people who made the intelligence decision uh, during the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And they succeeded in all three areas, to be honest. In 2000s, we spent a lot of time with uh, these people from intelligence who have, and still have, but now it's not active, their own press bureau, mm. uh, which talked with journalists, uh-huh. uh, tell them uh, told them interesting stories about their activities uh, in, uh, back in the 90s, in yeah. the 80s, in the, uh, in the 90s, in the 70s, and in the 60s. And all the stories was really fascinating. They was good. And there was no, you can say that these people doing something bad or killing somebody or being helpful in, in killing. They, they just doing espionage and gathering information. Yeah. Yeah. It was brilliant, it was extremely successful, selective. extremely selective yeah. stories. And that time, not like we believed them for 100%, but 
some of the stories we published and we, we, we tried to check, but there is not uh, not a lot that you can check in, in terms of Soviet espionage because uh, the sources mostly the people who, who were doing <laughs> who were doing this job, and uh, very rare there is an alternative sources in the archives. Archives mm-hmm. are all, all closed, and not a lot of sources from as, uh, some stories has uh, sources you can find sources on the west, in the West, but not for all of them. So partly, partly we <laughs> we know what it is. Yeah. So I mean, this is so, you know, this is a book about Russian immigrant communities, but also about the Russian security services, which, as you said, yeah. is a topic that you've been researching for for a long, uh, long time. To be honest, for us, it was a kind of we can say that we now we have sort of trilogy because our first book, The New Nobility, was mostly about the FSB, mm-hmm. the domestic security service, uh, and what happened to these. Uh, uh, service uh, thanks to uh, the 1990s and the war in Chechnya and Putin and how it evolved into what we have now. But it was mostly about, again, it was mostly about a uh, situation inside the country. The second book, uh, The Red Web, was mostly about how the Kremlin tried to deal with the new challenge, online challenge, and what kind of methods we used, including the methods of our security services. But of course, we always had in mind the idea that uh, we cannot completely forget about foreign intelligence because it's about uh, reaching out people outside the borders mm-hmm. and it uh, should be really interesting and given the fact that uh, the Russian diaspora is the uh, third largest in the world and uh, how it could be used and uh, how big and attractive it is in terms of uh, recruitment mm-hmm. uh, of course it was really interesting for us to, uh, to explore this topic. Yeah, well, and can you can you talk a little bit about that? How the foreign intelligence, whether the SVR or the other branches, relates to the Russian immigrant community today? How do they interact with them? How do they seek to use the the immigrant community for their own political ends? Putin created the concept of Ruski Mir, Russian world, that is from on the surface looks like a very innocent concept. Russian world or Ruski Mir is a worldwide community of Russian-speaking people who connected by their identity with uh, Russian culture Russian, and Russian history. So thanks to the long history of Russian emigration, there are a lot of Russians abroad and many of them wanted to be, uh, many of them feel that they're connected with Russian culture. So the Kremlin uh, uses people and use this concept to spread its its influence abroad and to use these people and like uh, potential recruitments for their goals. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of activity organized by the by Russian embassies here mm-hmm. in the United States and in Europe and also Russian ministry called Rosso Trudnichestov, which yeah. is uh, Russian, Russian, but it's a federal agency to deal with compatriots. With yeah. compatriots. Yeah. And uh, they launched a lot of events and under their umbrella also uh, a lot of NGOs and other organizations which is supported uh, supported Russian culture. Mm-hmm. And but of course, they can be used any moment as a huge recruitment base for being, for being activated here in the West. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, because this raises an interesting question. In Washington, there's a lot of discussion about what's sometimes called malign Russian influence. And the question I always have is, when is influence malign and when is it not? And some of the, the cultural activities that you're talking about... Completely innocent. Yeah, yeah, are the kind of things that any embassy or 
consulate is going to do with its diaspora communities. But it sounds like in, in this particular case, there's much more emphasis on actively recruiting people for, you know, whether it's intelligence operations or, or some kinds of other nefarious activity. The problem is that it's, uh, it starts with Putin's mentality as a, as a leader of the country because he was trained as a KGB agent. And, uh, of course, he was trained to recruit people. And in, in the way he sees the world in terms of uh, recruitment and when he talks to people, and especially in the beginning when uh, he only... He was just elected. We had some fascinating examples when he, for instance, he met some journalists and uh, could start asking questions, personal questions about his journalist parents. And it was absolutely clear that he was prepared. Right, that there was a file on it. Yes, there was a file on this journalist and some of his journalists were taken aback. But of course, we understand what the game is. Uh, Of course, now the situation has changed, but his approach uh, is still the same. To build this kind of organization with the thought that they could be used for some purposes. And we have some uh, examples in the book uh, when, uh, for instance, Russian-Americans who were prominent in Russia mostly for making money and became, well, became became known for making money, Putin found a use for them to achieve some of his political goals. And it might be not espionage. We are not talking about espionage here, but it might be something very important for him, like reunion of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad and uh, the church in Moscow. So, yeah, can you talk about that example a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating example because uh, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad was an embodiment of the idea of the other Russia. Right, of the emigration. Uh, the emigration, which is not compromised uh, mm. with the cooperation with communists. And given the fact that religion was getting more and more popular uh, and important for, for the Russians uh, starting in the 80s, of course, there was always this appeal that, well, somewhere there are priests who are not compromised mm-hmm. uh, with that um, cooperation with, uh, with the regime. And uh, it presented a challenge for, for the Kremlin because uh, if you have this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, alternative, well, people might well decide why I need to go to this church. Maybe I can, well, maybe I have a choice. Mm-hmm. But you cannot uh, just um, take over control of the church abroad, especially if you, are, if you pretend to be a democratic country where you have, uh, well, a gap between the church and the state. And Putin tried that approach, actually. Uh, firstly, he, his approach was very blatant. He tried to invite to, when he was here in the U.S., he invited the head of uh, the church uh, here to talk, uh, and the head of the church just uh, didn't show up. Uh, because it was a clear interference and it was not very sensible. Uh, So what he did, he identified Russian-Americans, for instance, Boris Jordan, Mm -hmm. who is a very prominent Russian-American with uh, a descendant of a very respectable aristocratic family uh, of white emigres who made some really good money in, in Russia and already proved useful, doing some sensitive things for the Kremlin. For instance, he helped to secure control over the independent TV channel and TV uh, in the beginning of the 2000s. And Boris Jordan was happy to help to reunite the churches. And now we have one church, centralized and directed from Moscow. So in in interviewing the compatriots or the, the immigrant community, did you get a sense of their political orientation, you know, are they on the whole more skeptical of of Putin? Are they kind of in line with uh, Russians who live in Russia in terms of their political views? 
and it's very difficult to say uh, um, it's very difficult to detect the common spirit of this community because mm. people are split it's very diverse they are absolutely absolutely diverse and I know that Brookings Institute tried to try to gather information on Facebook about mm. what is this people thinking but we were focused on um, on political immigration on political exile there are not a lot of people even less than one percent of people people who emigrated by the political reasons who were most of them were expelled uh, uh-huh. from the country or was forced out of the country like Gary Kasparov or young opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza mm-hmm. who lived here in Washington yeah. DC and was poisoned twice when he visited Moscow yeah. or Khodorkovsky Russian oligarch who previously was put in prison spent mm-hmm. there spent there 10 years and then also was literally put on the plane and and yeah. he promised never came back so uh these people of course they are anti-kremlin most yeah, of them clear. are liberal and right. and they and they still uh, keep on the anti-kremlin political activity here in the west so but talking about other people um it's it's very difficult to say because a lot of people we visit brighton beach yeah. a huge community of russians uh, russian jewish uh russian jewish community people who immigrated in the Seventies, eighties, and nineties. Yeah. Uh, many of them uh, are because anti-Semitism was uh, mm-hmm. va- va- was huge in the in the Soviet Union, and some of them by economical economical reasons because uh, the life in the Soviet Union was was very poor. Right. And in this community, the spirit's not the same as among political emigrants. So some of sure. people supported Putin. Some of people told us that uh, they are happy to see strong Russia. Yeah. A strong strong Russia means that <laughs> that Russia doing some 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 harm abroad. And so it's it's, it's very difficult to say. But of course there are also a lot of people who aren't Kremlin. Right. Um, what well, and one of the things that's that's different about the post-Soviet emigration is that a lot of these people, one, have family who are still in Russia, and two, they go back and forth a lot. Does that sort of affect their views? Does that sort of affect how the Kremlin deals with them? No, we don't see that uh, they use, uh, I don't know, the tactics of uh, taking hostages mm-hmm. and forcing people to comply. Actually, it's not that. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have some ideological issues here. For instance, uh, it was quite clear that lots of descendants of uh, the first wave of emigration, white army, uh-huh. uh, which fled to Russia because of Bolsheviks. These people, surprisingly, but they now they are very supportive of the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. And not because they have relatives. And of course, they, they don't have any relatives. Right. Well, and, and they don't have to live in Russia and deal yeah. with whatever the problem, happens there. The problem with them is that, in a way, they are they're also imperialists. Mm-hmm. And they love this idea of a strong imperial Russia. It's, uh, they, they sort of uh, inherited this... Uh, uh, mentality of the 19th century yeah. and because Putin shares the same mentality and actually he's using exactly the same language mm-hmm. and uh, remember that I think it was two years ago when Putin opened this monument to the Tsar uh, Alexander III I think uh, with, uh, with his uh, famous uh, crazy quote that Russia has only two allies uh, the army and the, the fleet and the navy I mean this thing is extremely popular in Russia and mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately it also uh, well quite popular among these uh, circles of uh, immigrations, which is really surprising given the fact that their ancestors were uh, literally killed by, by Bolsheviks and Putin never actually said anything against Cheka. He's proud to be uh, an officer of the KGB, Chikis. which is 
direct successor to Chica. Chica yeah. was a predecessor right. of the Caribbean, early predecessor. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's not surprising because this is a phenomenon that I think you see with diaspora communities in general, um, that they tend to be more nationalistic and more hardline, in part because they don't have to live with the consequences, but also because they have this kind of romanticized image of, of the past. And you see that in the U.S. with, for example, the Armenian diaspora, um, with the Jewish diaspora and its relationship with Israel, the Irish diaspora. They're always a little bit more hardline in a lot of ways than the governments of the countries that you know they claim as their own. So I, I'm not terribly surprised to hear that the same thing is true of, of Russians. We've been talking about political exiles um, primarily in the United States and, and in the West. But of course, there are political exiles from Russia in, in a number of different countries. Um, I know you focus primarily on the United States, but can you talk a little bit about the, the emigration in Europe, and which is much closer to Russia and where there's more kind of direct contact? Uh, yeah, for instance, we, of course, we have now uh, a lot of Russians fleeing the country to uh, to Ukraine and to the Baltics. And it's, I don't, it's not exactly the success stories. These people, I mean, these people, they try to find the way to live in these countries. And uh, we have now very successful, for instance, project uh, Medusa uh -huh. and New Media, which is based in Riga. And um, the journalists who, who work for Medusa and, and other journalists and people who fled or moved from, from the country after 2014, mostly these people, they moved after the annexation of Crimea, feeling uncomfortable uh, with what happened. Uh, we, are, we are ready to, to be integrated and we, we love to be integrated. But in many of these countries, they, first of all, there is a conflict between mm -hmm. the so-called old Russians, uh -huh. people who actually uh, stayed in these countries after, after the collapse of the right. Soviet people Union. People who moved there during the Soviet period. And then yes. stayed. And we are, we are un, unfortunately, we are very pro Kremlin, many of them very pro Kremlin, and we are not in love with these new comers from new, new, new Russians coming from, from Russia right now. Mm -hmm. So there is a conflict here. And the other problem is that the governments and the societies as a whole of these countries, we, we are quite suspicious of mm -hmm. these Russians. Uh, and uh, it's a big problem, for instance, for, for Ukraine. We have so many journalists uh, living in the country who try to, to continue their, their careers in Ukraine, but Ukrainian journalists, they felt even before the, the war that uh, the Russian side are taking their positions and uh, it's also caused some conflict. So it's not actually such a big success story as yeah. uh, it could be, because actually there was a chance to get so many intellectuals from Russia and to create a new, well, maybe the other Russia number two. Mm -hmm. And that would be a very interesting thing for, for many, actually, especially now because uh, the borders are uh, stay porous and you can move between the countries and it would give a chance for many to think that probably there are some choices for them. Mm -hmm. That they can create this kind of kernel of a, a more liberal democratic Russia in Berlin or London or Riga or absolutely because we have this big problem now it's it's a bit philosophical question but it's uh, I'm I'm to be honest for me it's very personal and uh, it's very sad that just several years ago before the annexation of Crimea we tended to think of Russia in terms of say 10 years maybe 15 years like we always compared Putin with Yeltsin maybe mm -hmm. with Gorbachev but after the annexation of Crimea everybody started immediately thinking in terms of 100 years uh, 200 years and actually the, the idea of this change is Russia always has been like that. Yeah. It was always imperialistic, always aggressive. It's not about communists. It's not about Putin. Right. It's about Russian nature. 
And of course, I'm as a Russian, I'm not extremely happy. Sure. That <laughs> I'm sort of condemned to this thing. <laughs> and uh, if uh, we would have some alternative, uh, some Russian enclave, uh, we have some intellectual life uh, uh, developing, that would be really great. Yeah. Now, in terms of you know who these emigres are, we've been talking about a specific subset of them. But one thing that I'm interested in, and I don't know if you address this in the book, is Muslim emigres, many of whom are political emigres, often not to the West, although some of them are, but to places like Turkey or to the Middle East. Do you have much sense of, of how many of them there are, or sort of how the, the Kremlin interacts with them, how it views them? Obviously, a few of them have been assassinated. Uh, we didn't cover this issue in the book, but we have been writing on this issue as a journalist. Mm-hmm. There are not a lot of Muslim immigration from the country. It, uh, the most people who immigrated, they are refugee or political refugee or former separatists or people who right closely connected with Chechen separatists or maybe member of their family mm-hmm. and they faced with prosecution in the country right. and uh, decided to leave for mostly for Turkey. Yeah. Some of them uh, after the, the second Chechen war there was a huge Chechen emigration to the Europe but many people came back. Right. Killings of these people started from 2004, 2004 so yeah. mm-hmm. it's 15 years ago and there was no problem for the Kremlin that that these people should be eliminated. Uh, they considered as terrorists. Right. And so there was no problem for the Kremlin that, that these people should be eliminated even abroad. Uh, that time when the first killings was carried out, there even uh, Russia did not, did not have a law frame for these operations. But they... Uh, but the security services com- carried out this operation. So, and since then, it have never it have never stopped. Mm-hmm. And the last example uh, that happened in Berlin, where where Chechen uh, separatist, former uh, Russians called him terrorist, was killed literally uh, in the daylight, and there yeah. was a, many witnesses of this. And the person who who committed killings was was arrested. We didn't know so far who he is, but it's clear that the intelligence and security services was was, be, was behind him. Mm-hmm. He was not motivated. He couldn't be motivated by personally against this Chechen uh, Chechen man. Yeah, now, that raises another topic that you, know, you address in the book, and I, that is quite important, which is that there have been a number of prominent emigres, not just Chechens, who've been killed by the presumably the security services over the years. How has that kind of affected emigrate politics? How much do, uh, you know, ordinary Russian emigres talk about, think about, worry about, uh, you know, what's happened to people like... Uh, uh, well, like Skripal? Uh, Skripal? Yeah, well, like Skripal. Uh-huh. Would, Skripal actually but, changes the game completely. Um, when Alexander Litvinenko was killed and uh, poisoned in 2006, it had some effect on the Russian yeah. society, but not that big. To be honest, there was some confusion. The British um, response was also confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we got these two guys, uh, Lugavo and Kofton, on the Russian television, and they didn't actually convince everybody that they were completely innocent, but again, it was kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. But with Skripal, it was absolutely different, yeah. and lots of people got scared. And when we spoke to uh, to our contacts for the book, oligarchs, priests. Uh, security services officers or politicians in exile, most of them actually raised this question about Skripal and asked us what what do we think about it. Yeah. And it was quite clear that we got this message that uh, you might be very far from the Russian borders, but there is a way to reach you mm-hmm. and to kill you no matter what. And it was, um, I think it was quite effective mm-hmm. in terms of uh, many people started to think twice what we can say, what we can do, I mean, politically. 
Yeah. Well, of course, both Litvinenko and Skripal were members of the Russian security services who the Kremlin viewed as having betrayed the country. So you're saying that sort of ordinary Russians who don't have those connections or that background kind of interpreted what happened to them as a threat to themselves. Yeah, because because of uh, of the way Skripal was poisoned. It was so... His daughter, his his daughter also was a victim. Yeah. It's yeah. a really intimidating right. effect. And also when Putin made his... Uh, Uh, disparaging remark about this uh, British citizen who was killed accidentally that, well, she was nobody. I mean, it was really, really scary for many. And when we got this um, interview of uh, these two guys on RT, and when you just see the faces of these guys right. who are We're assassins. We're supposed to go looking at the spires of the cathedral. Yes, and you just think, wow... If these kind of people are given the task to kill, it's 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 really scary. Uh, it's it's not like we had this idea from uh, from the Soviet Union. Actually, Andropov invested a lot and changing the image of the KGB, trying to portray them as the most intelligent part of uh, the security apparatus of the Soviet Union. So you had this image that maybe these people were brutal, but at least they were intelligent. Right. And now you have completely different picture. Mm-hmm. And that's why it doesn't matter whether you are from security services uh, or you are just an opposition uh, activist or political activist, if you decide that you can could be a target, it's mm-hmm. really scary. And it's very, very difficult to get accustomed yourself to the idea that you live in the country where political regime as Iranian regime or Ayatollah Khomeini sent its killers across the world, across Europe mm-hmm. uh, to kill its, to kill former Russian citizen. It's, it's really, no, it's really hard. Yeah. Now, obviously, you spend a lot of time for this book talking both to members of the immigration, but also to people within the security services. And I'm curious about the conversations that you had with them, how eager they were to talk with you, and, and whether in doing the kind of research that you've been doing, you feel how you can do this kind of research and be based in Russia. Look, uh, we've been writing about um, uh, the Russian security services since 1999. Uh, so we can trace some of our sources back to the period of, uh, of the early 2000s. So we, these people are trust. Well, they, they trust us and we trust them. Also, I would say after Medvedev, there was a big incentive for some people inside to talk to journalists, not only to us, but to some journalists in Russia because uh, lots of people inside are unhappy. Mm-hmm. And it's quite understandable. Look, we have... A guy running the country for 20 years. That means that his, uh, well, his close circle is also the same. He he didn't actually change everybody, which means that um, there is no change of generations and in, in no many, upward mobility. Exactly, and it's it's a big problem for the security services. It means that many colonels uh, completely give up uh, any hope to become generals, mm-hmm. for instance, and that again that gives them incentive to uh, to reach out journalists. But uh, at the same time, I would say that comparing with uh, The situation several years ago when we researched for the first book and second book, I would say that it was much more difficult Mm -hmm. to find people willing to talk, especially on the record. That was really difficult, even with the people who now live abroad. Uh I mean, we have some former KGB, FSB, slash SVR people and slash GRU people who now live in in the West. Uh, But these people got really scared after Skripal. Mm -hmm. It's a good message. Yeah, they got got this message from the Kremlin. And as for you guys personally, because you're based in in Russia, what kind of a reaction have you gotten from the authorities to to 
this work? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's unclear. Was, <laughs> it's unclear because the book was just published in, in, in English and it, uh, there is no Russian uh, version of the book. We are still waiting for, we are, we are waiting for, for the Russian publication and we, we don't know yet mm-hmm. when uh, it would be published in, in Russian. So let's see. We yeah. just don't know. But I, 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 I'm sure the Kremlin will not be happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did they respond to your previous books? Oh, we have some interesting stories uh, and some happy coincidences. For instance, uh, when we published the first book, and it was really sensitive because we had uh, chapters about assassinations abroad and about many things. It was The book was published in English in 2010, and it took a year for the Russian publisher to translate the book, which means that it was published in Russian in September 2011. Mm-hmm. And the FSB sort of started investigating us, and uh, they sent a team of people to, for some reasons, they decided to raid the printing house. Nobody knows why. <laughs> but it was September 2011, so next next month we got Moscow protests. Mm-hmm. And the FSB had a lot to do with the protests and not with us which was a really happy coincidence. Uh, and uh, we have some other stories too. For instance, uh, our book, The New Nobility, the first one about the FSB, you cannot buy it on uh, on the Russian version of Amazon, call it Ozon.ru. It's prohibited. They decided not to uh, not to sell the book. And they, they, they decided this from the beginning, from 2011, and it's still unavailable. So you cannot buy this book uh, in Russian. Uh, that's why it's one of the reasons why we actually we sort of okay with uh, pirates in our country <laughs> because of course we we we, we now they have our book uh, for free mm-hmm. online. But at least it's uh, in this way uh, right, it's, it's available. available for for people who want to. But I, I love the ex- explanation. We're not going the the road. They send a message to our publishers that they not go that they're not going to sell this book because on the true because yeah. because of security but of security reasons yeah <laughs> for security reasons yeah <clears throat> now you know you mentioned that doing the research for this book people were more reluctant to talk to you what do you think accounts for the the shift is it because of the topic is it because of changes in the political environment since Crimea or some combination? I think it's um, it's a combination of many things. Uh, first of all, people are, well, by definition, they are more reluctant to talk about foreign intelligence. Right. Look, uh, people from counterintelligence and from counterterrorism departments, they are more willing to talk to journalists because sometimes they see the real catastrophes and real crises, mm-hmm. and that prompts them to go to journalists. For instance, if you have a hostage-taking situation, a terrorist attack in the center of uh, of Moscow, and you see, and you are you are an officer of the FSB, you want to do something good, mm-hmm. but when you see that your uh, superiors are completely well incompetent, that urges you to right. go to journalists and to talk because it's, it burns you inside. But if you are uh, in uh, intelligence, there is no such a crisis which could prompt you to go to journalists. Actually, these people are mostly concerned with they, uh, they, they just don't want to be expelled from the countries like the United States. That's a basic concern, but not uh, the activities of a superiors in Moscow. The other thing, of course, is, uh, is Crimea mm-hmm. because what we got after Crimea is... Um, Actually, two years after Crimea, it started in 2016, but Putin introduced uh, selective repressions. And now it touches um, almost every strat of the Russian society, from art directors to governors to mm-hmm. ministers, including FSB generals. Uh, we have some FSB generals in jail, which is completely unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And that, again, sends a very strong message to everybody that it's better not to 
deviate and and be stale oil. Yeah. All right. Well, we've covered a lot. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us here. Hey, thanks for joining. That's it for our show today. In the show notes, you can find a link where you can order The Compatriots, their new book on Russia's exiles, emigres, and agents abroad. For those of you who haven't, you should consider subscribing to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Enjoy, keep spreading the word, and subscribe. And also send your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, We'll do another mailbag section here soon. Uh, We're looking forward to hearing from you. You should also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me directly at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, a big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and adapt team. Thanks for listening. Until next time.